In this episode, I am once again joined by Naomi Levine, author, under her birth name of Norma Levine, of multiple books including The Miraculous Sixteenth Karmapa, A Quest for the Hidden Lands, and Chronicles of Love and Death, My Years with the Last Spiritual King of Bhutan. In this interview, Naomi discusses the life of Frida Bedi, born in 1911, and also known as Sister Palmo, activist, radical, and the first Western woman to take full ordination in Tibetan Buddhism. Naomi recounts Frida's upbringing, education at Oxford University, controversial marriage to the communist activist BPL Bedi, flight from Nazi Germany, and arrival in India. Naomi describes Frida's conversion to Buddhism, ordination, and founding of the Young Lama's Home School, where she taught English to young tulkus, such as Chogyam Trungpa, Ringu, Tuptenzopa, Jokinima, and more. Naomi also discusses Frida's religious practice, the remarkable circumstances of her death, and shares the accounts of Buddhist lamas who ascribe to Frida high spiritual attainments. So without further ado, Naomi Levine. Naomi Levine, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Steve. Pleasure to be here again. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you again. And today we're going to be discussing The Spiritual Odyssey of Frida Bedi, one of your books. Fascinating person. I'm so delighted to be talking about this topic with you today. And, you know, I, I thought we might begin with your own contact with the story. How was it you became aware of Frida Bedi? Um, what sparked your interest? And how is it you came to write a, a book about her? Yeah. Um... I was pondering this um, this morning and uh, I realized that it had started with the stories that I was collecting about the 16th Karmapa. Uh, right after that book was, I think it was almost finished. That book was almost finished when suddenly I got a message from somebody who knew a friend of mine that I ought to go and ask Ranga Bedi, who is the eldest son of Frida uh, and lives in Bangalore, I ought to go and ask him about the 16th Karmapa and if he has something to say because she thought that there was, you know, uh, a real opening there. So I, I wrote a quick email to Ranga and uh, told him I was coming to India at a certain time and I was... Um, on my way to um, Goa, and uh, would it be possible to drop in on him and um, have a cup of tea? <laughs> Basically, I didn't want to, uh, you know, ask too much at the beginning because I didn't know whether he actually did have, um, you know, something important to say about the sixteenth Karmapa. But I thought it would be quite nice to meet him. So he replied very politely, very warmly, and uh, I ended up uh, in his house and um, I was struck immediately by the, the, the light, the light in the whole house in Bangalore. Um, and he brought me immediately upstairs into the shrine room, uh, which um, was Frida's shrine, but it was now the shrine for the whole house. And there were um, pictures there of, um, there was a crucifix, there was a Guru Rinpoche, 
there was Guru Nanak, there was the 16th Karmapa. I mean, it was a, a, a you know, all in one. It was an all in one shrine with uh, some of the texts of Frida and also the um, um, award that she had been given by Indira Gandhi uh, as um, woman of the year for her social welfare work in India. Uh, and that was in a little kind of alcove of its own. So I sat there for a little while and I thought, something remarkable is here and it's lit up the whole house um then uh as we talked he said he didn't have that much to say about the 16th karmapa that was really like um you know it was it was frida's um you know he only met the 16th through frida and he didn't really have much to say but as I was leaving, he said, um, the ball is in your court if you want to write a book about mummy. Now, I pondered this very carefully. I took it to heart. I went back to uh, the Karmapa and I asked him what he thought. And he said, I should do it. I knew there was already another book in the offing and I didn't want to get in the way. And so I checked it out carefully. And uh, then uh, I began doing uh, various research. However, the most, uh, the, 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 the most uh, important link in doing that book was that I had never met Frida. I was at Sherabling two years after she had passed away, Sherabling in India where uh, my guru's um, uh, seat is. And um, I had somewhat befriended um, a, a, a Tibetan nun called Annie Zangmo, who was living on the same hillside, but on the other end of the hillside. And Annie Zangmo used to come to me frequently kind of running out of breath and very excited. And she did this more than once, twice, three times. She told me the story of the passing of Mamila. Uh, and uh, she told me the story that the, uh, her passing had been an extraordinary passing, that she had sat up in meditation, that she knew beforehand she was going to die and after she passed away, there were all the indications of having died in the state of meditation, and uh, which is what the Tibetans call tukdam. The body stays in meditation for a number of days. It doesn't uh, decompose. And um, uh, in fact, she added a few things that turned out to be not quite true. She slightly exaggerated it. Um, she also said that the body got smaller and smaller, but that was not proven by anyone. So I listened to all this from Annie Zangmo, and I thought that's very strange because when someone passes like that in Buddhism, everyone knows about it. I mean, it's a big deal. So why was this Western woman, um, 
who had done so much for the Tibetans, uh, as it turned out, why was this not known? I even asked my guru, and he was not inclined to make any statement at all. So it remained a mystery. Later on, when I explored the subject, when I decided to do the book and I explored the subject properly with the family, they maintained that uh, the signs were there, that she had passed um, uh, in a, a state of meditation, that there was perspiration on her brow, which is one of the signs of the meditation being completed, that her body was flexible, supple, so on, four days after, no rigor mortis, and, and uh, many, many hundreds, many hundreds of people turned up for the cremation, monks of all kind, of all, of all different orders. She had affected so many people. Um, uh, when they called the Karmapa, by the way, the, the family, uh, Ranga and Kabir, when they called the Karmapa and told him about it, he said, take her body to Rumtek. But they thought, well, she's already passed. It's already like uh, 36 hours. And um, by the time we get her onto the airplane at Siliguri, and then we take a Jeep up to Rumtek, Another several days will have passed and we don't want to see her in rigor mortis. So we'll, we'll cremate her at uh, Goody Oberoi's um, uh, mansion, um, estate, as it were, because she had died at Goody Oberoi's, uh, right next to Goody Oberoi's apartment in the Oberoi Hotel, uh, next door to her best friend, who uh, had introduced her to the 16th Karmapa. So, um, so that was something that they later said that they regretted not having taken her to room tech because the Karmapa could see that she was not going to be in rigor mortis. So um, that sort of um, started me on the road of um, uh, interest, let's say, it's sort of like almost trying to solve a mystery. Why had it not been acknowledged? As I delved into her life, and I don't know if I can give an answer to that question even now, why hadn't it been acknowledged? So uh, when, when I started delving into her life, I realized that her it was a very seminal period uh, that she lived through. It was the rise of um, Marxist idealism and um, the rise equally of fascism, um, the uh, Great Depression, the Second World War, Gandhi's anti-colonialism, Indian independence and partition, the Tibetan diaspora and the explosion of the 60s counterculture. Uh, and she lived through, uh, this was, these were the big events that surrounded her life. And she was in the center of all of them. She was born Frida Hulston, an English lady. 
she became Frida Beatty, the wife of a, um, a communist uh, revolutionary, Indian communist revolutionary, Punjabi, actually. And then she became Golongma Palmo, who brought literally Tibetan Buddhism. She was the bridge for Tibetan Buddhism to the West. So this was, um, you know, a very, very important life. Now, to tell you the story in uh, a kind of a microcosmic, microcosmic, microcosmic form, uh, in a condensed way, um, she was born uh, to. She was a working class woman. I mean, born into a working class family. Let's say, not. Um, she was not from any sort of like a privileged. She had no privileged life at all. She had no contacts um and yet and yet you know she managed to get into um i think it was saint hilda or was it um another college uh she managed to get into oxford um now there were only a few women's colleges at the time and the reason she got in the reason she even sat the examinations is that uh, a friend of hers said, come along and be a support for me because I'm going to sit the exams, you know, but her friend didn't get in, but she got in. She got the coveted also scholarship, St. Hilda's, was it St. Hilda's? St. Hugh's. That's right. Um, and uh, there she uh, met some of the most uh, incredible teachers were uh, giving lectures at the time. Albert Einstein, um, Rabindranath Tagore. Um, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. I mean, they were, you know, you can't imagine how thirsty she was for this kind of culture, this kind of information. And she, and I think Gandhi, even uh, gave a lecture there during her time. So this would have been a big deal for anyone. Uh, on top of that, she then met this very charming, charismatic um, uh, Sikh man from a, an aristocratic uh, Sikh family who was a descendant of Guru Nanak. His family was were descendants of Guru Nanak. And um, they conducted a, uh, a very, shall we say, uh, what do you say about something that is, they, they started to have a, more than a friendship. They were, they got deeply involved. They became actually soulmates very quickly. They had a lot of interests in common and he introduced her to a lot of, political ways of thinking, and they were translating some of Marx's letters at the uh, British Library. Um, and to be connected with someone like that, and also to have uh, extramar extramarital sex, both those things were considered just, well, almost, it puts you outside of society, almost, you know, so she, they remedied it, or they tried to remedy it by getting married, but um, Nobody seemed to approve of that very much. Her mother um, 
didn't approve, but she attended the wedding in a registry office anyway. So they had their time at Oxford and then they moved on to um, India to become part of um, Gandhi's uh, freedom movement. And they both offered themselves for Satyagraha, which means that you offer yourself to go to prison. In other words, you, you offer yourself as an example um, uh, to be dragged off into prison. I don't know quite how this works. Maybe it's uh, all passive resistance, but anyway, she did offer herself. She did spend only a few months. Her sentence was shortened. They were giving her, uh, I think longer, they were giving her a year or so, and uh, they shortened it to about three months, but she seems to have had a great time there. There was an awful lot of, um, there were many women that, that um, uh, Indian women inside the prison and many of them had been there for killing their husbands. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they were, all, they were all married to very elderly uh, men and she thought uh, perhaps it, 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 prison was a better idea than giving your life over to a, um, uh, an old man. Anyway, um, what does, I, I want to go back a bit because I've, I've left out something that was very important. During the time before she went to Oxford, she was uh, considered a little bit different. You know, she was born into a Christian family. Her mother had uh, Christian values, even though the father had been called off to the First World War and had uh, been killed uh, several months, only a few months before the end of the war. So she was seven years old when that happened and that had a great effect on her life because she never knew her father at all. And uh, her mother then uh, thought after that that she was, it was, wasn't worthwhile believing in God because if God could take away somebody so innocent as her husband, then there was no God. So Frida was given like, you know, she wasn't given an Orthodox Christian uh, upbringing, but she did meditate. She started meditating very young. She would sit in St. Peter's Chapel in uh, Derby. And uh, what she was looking for was an experience of the divine. She wanted to um, have a direct experience of uh, the divine. She didn't want religion, basically. She wanted um, uh, spiritual, spiritual, uh, direct spiritual experience. Uh, so that made her a bit different. In another way, she was a, a very beautiful woman. She was very fashionable. She dressed, um, you know, she dressed up to the hilt. She was known as the Mona Lisa at uh, Oxford. Uh, so there, there was that side to her as well. You know, um, she, she wasn't, she wasn't a, um, uh, an academic type of person. She was a hands-on type of person who wanted to get involved in things. So let's take it from India. She then uh, entered a, a, a very, you know, Indian 
family setting in which she was welcomed like a daughter who um, was from another country, but she was never treated as um, anything other than, um, a, you know, a member of the family. There was no distinction between her and Indians can be very uh, as snobbish as um, the British when it comes to that sort of thing. So she, she was embraced totally by the family. Then uh, they started um, having, I think they already had a child. They already had Rango when they were uh, traveling through Germany. He got us, by the way, before going to India, he got a scholarship, go to university in Berlin. And uh, while there, they uh, heard that uh, Hitler was becoming the leader of the country. They packed their bags, they got on a train, they went to Geneva, and from there they left uh, to go to India. So um, this is to give you some idea of the, uh, of the dimensions in the background uh, that, that, they, that they kind of went through. Um, they joined the Satyagraha movement and um, uh, yeah, um, she made friends at Oxford with people like Barbara Castle um, and uh, Olive Shapley, who was the originator of Radio 4 Women's Hour. Barbara Castle, of course, was one of the longest standing labor um, ministers. Um, so when I went to interview uh, Kabir, who was a, is, still is a very successful um, Bollywood actor, he said, um, she was, they lived their ideals. They lived for their ideals. They didn't live for money. They didn't live for um, anything at all, but they would not compromise their ideals. So they were always very poor. And even when uh, they uh, had a, a nice villa to live in, which, which uh, Beatty had uh, inherited, um, they decided to move out and to live in bamboo huts in a place called Model Town in Lahore. And their living quarters became, uh, as, as uh, Kabir said, it became a very lefty uh, kind of meeting place for um, all kinds of people who were interested in the Gandhi movement. Um, so, then she became some time later uh, after uh, yes, there was a crisis uh, that happened uh, some time later in Kashmir. Uh, BPL Beatty, who was really like a quite a staunch um, communist, um, became more of a, a, a social democrat as well. 
they were they were with uh, they were aligned with Sheikh Abdullah, who was the first prime minister of Kashmir, and uh, Sheikh Abdullah was trying to get a bit more uh, freedom from the uh, Indian government. Uh, Kashmir, well, you know, each each maharaja uh, during the time of partition could choose whether to align themselves with India or Pakistan. Um, so um, it was, I think, uh, a Hindu, Harry Singh, I think, who was the uh, Maharaja of, uh, it was, yeah, I think it was, it was certainly Hindu uh, Maharaja who decided to go with uh, India, but then there was a rebellion from the, um, the other side, from the Pakistani side, and uh, during which time uh, BPL Beatty, uh, as he was known, uh, because of his command of languages, uh, he was ferrying people from one side to the other. Finally, they they um, fell out. He and Sheikh Abdullah, the first prime minister, fell out because uh, Sheikh Abdullah wanted to get more independence from India. But uh, Beatty said it's never going to work, so don't do it. So at that point, there was no reason to stay in Kashmir. Now, uh, Kabir's memories um, go back uh, to Kashmir. That's where he was born. And um, all his memories are quite delightful. But they got out of Kashmir. They moved to Delhi. She became involved in doing social work uh, and um, saw the effects of the Bengal famine in which, about which she wrote a, a book. And um, then... At a certain point, she went, I can't remember what it was that brought her, she, she went to Burma. Yeah, she became part of a three-member UN mission to reorganize social services in Burma. And when she entered the Svadgam Pagoda in Rangoon, she encountered the great master Sayada Utitila and got into Vipassana meditation. After that, she had a profound experience of shunyata. Now it was called a nervous breakdown by her family, but uh, for her, she called it uh, an experience of enlightenment and fell to the ground unconscious. So that was her entry into Buddhism, but she never described it anywhere as a mental breakdown. However, that's the way the family saw it and that's the way they described it. But she, you know, did go to hospital. She was treated. She left hospital and she was completely okay. Now, uh, then she served in the Tibetan. The Tibetans were then coming out of, uh, in, of uh, Tibet en masse into Assam. And at this point, uh, Nehru was the uh, prime minister of the newborn Indian state, the state of India. And Indira Gandhi uh, was his daughter, of course. So she became very close friends with Indira. And um, 
they decided together that she was the best person to deal with the refugee crisis in Assam because um, she already had this connection with Buddhism. So she served there for a long time and she became known because when Kabir went to see her there, he called her mummy and uh, they all started to call her mummy, mummy law. And she became known then as mummy law. So she was mother. She became mother India to all these uh, Tibetan refugees. And she took each problem seriously. In other words, hands on, let's get to the point here. Let's solve this problem, sickness, whatever it was, she was, she was there for them. She nursed them through this, this whole thing. The other um, thing that it led to, the most important thing perhaps that it led to, was that she, she founded the Young Lamas Homeschool. She realized very early on that there was a big difference between Tibetans, one Tibetan and another Tibetan. A Lama was um, like the intelligentsia of the whole Tibetan system. Usually Tibetans were thought of as um, peasants in India. They were kind of considered lower caste because they really didn't understand the Tibetan system. But she saw immediately how it worked. And she saw that there were lamas, ordinary, and then there were ordinary people. They were all going to be road builders, road workers. But she said, no, you can't put them all into the same category. And for that reason, she started the Young Lamas Homeschool, where the lamas, all the lamas that, that we probably see as the... Um, uh, well, the older lamas that are still around, uh, Chogyam Trumpa was there, uh, Chimi Rinpoche was there, Akon Rinpoche was there, um, uh, Ato Rinpoche was there. Lama Zopa was there, Chokinima. That's right, Lama Zopa was there, Chokinima. Chokinima. Chokinima also. Ringutuku. Ringutuku, you're right, yes. <laughs> yes. They all, they all learned English because she said all they need to do, because they have the background, all they need to do is learn English so they can communicate to Westerners. So she really got into this and uh, they stayed there. Uh, they graduated from there and then they went, as we know, they went to different parts of Europe and England and they founded centers. And uh, then after that happened, she tried to convince the Karmapa that he had to go to the West. That was a big job. She worked on him for two years. He kept saying, no, there is no Dharma there. <laughs> so she said, well, you have to go and see it for yourself. Chogyam Trumpa was already there, by the way. And, and, uh, the invitations came from um, Namgyal Rinpoche, first of all, in Canada, to set the record straight, because it's usually uh, it's usually said that it was Chogyam Trumpa who sent the first invitation. But no, it was Lama Na uh, Namgyal Rinpoche. Uh, Chogyam Trumpa then um, 
took it over in a way and provided first class seats for everyone, including a seat for the black hat, a first class for the black hat on the airplane. So finally, finally, she convinced him that she should go and do a bit of investigating before, you know, and plan the whole visit. So she took off. She was met by, um, was it Chogyam Trumper or was it someone else? I think it was another woman uh, who, anyway, somebody met her and uh, she investigated everything. She saw what Chogyam Trumper was doing. He still missed her momos. She was happy to report and uh, she cooked for him. And, um, and they were they were just really delighted to see each other again. Uh, and then she went back to Karmapa and she said, I've seen it for myself and now you really have to go. So they went, they were greeted. Uh, I think they landed in New York. They were greeted by Chogyam Trumpa. And, uh, you know, he went all out, absolutely all out to decorate um, uh, a stadium in San Francisco for the Black Hat. He had uh, walls uh, covered in brocade for the Karmapa to live in. I mean, you know, no expenses spared. Um, and it went very, very well. So in many ways, she turned on, she herself turned on people to the Karmapa, but she also turned people on herself. And she became a teacher and she was teaching POA. I know that for a fact, that she had been given the transmission for POA, which is consciousness ejection, uh, uh, by Ayang Rinpoche, who is the POA specialist. And um, he had something very, very interesting to say about her. Uh, when I asked him about it, I had a meeting with him uh, as part of the book. Um, so Ayang Rinpoche said, Frida Beatty was first a worldly lady. Finally, she became a great spiritual lady. She was very great, not an ordinary lady. She was definitely a tulku or emanation. I believe she was a dakini. So she was the first Westerner to attain the exalted state of enlightenment, uh, as far as I could see from my research. And um, it's also kind of interesting if you, if you want to hear how another person saw her. Uh, it's, uh, I found a very interesting description by Didi Contractor. If you remember, Didi Contractor was also writing one of the uh, 16th Karmapa stories, but she was a very close friend of Didi's. And um, oh, Didi said, if I may read this, it's a couple of pages long, but I found it very, very interesting. Because Didi always had an original take on everything. And, and I always found her very um, interesting to talk to. So she said, we hit it off like a house on fire. I was delighted by her, amused by her Englishness, 
loved that she was also a foreign wife. We became good friends. When we look at a many faceted figure like Frida Beatty, we see only one or two facets. But what is remarkable and memorable about hers is she was full of ambiguity and paradoxes. When there are paradoxes, you are closer to the truth. The ambiguity sits at the center. There was an ambiguity of ideology in the generation when her ideology was formed. The movement of the intellectuals in Oxford underwent massive orientations and changes. I'm fascinated by seeing her in the context of her background. I remember her saying my first enlightenment about when she was in Burma and discovered Buddhism. She came back and was changed by that experience. She referred to her epiphany as if it was an enlightenment experience, embracing the experience of living with a joint family in a Punjabi village was also a wholehearted experience. In the Lahore years, she lived in a hut and slept on the floor and had oil lamps. And then Nora Richards in Andretta was one of her older friends whom she admired and emulated. Everything she undertook, she did completely and wholeheartedly. The whole bouquet is what Frida was. She kept moving as people do when they are on a journey. She's written much more, but I don't know whether um, uh, uh, I should continue reading. Um, but um, there's another place. I think this is this is also quite interesting. She adored the 16th Karmapa, just as one might have a crush on somebody. All of us have crushes on our gurus. When we were going to receive darshan from the Karmapa and were taking roses to him, she busied herself taking off the thorns because she wanted us to present the flowers as representative of our actions. So we were pulling off these thorns and I was amused by her literal interpretation in picking off the real thorns. She was a great romantic all the way through, ready to believe in any miracle that one brought up with herself as having a glorious role in it. She saw us as part of the great unfolding of the religious history of the world. She liked to see things on a grand scale. She was not deeply intellectual, she was a big-hearted person. The last time I saw her, a month before her death, she knew she was on the way out. She was very aware of it. She didn't feel that she had to do a lot more. It was more important to be in the moment. She was ready to risk the future. She knew she was taking chances. Anyway, she didn't mind if she died. She was ready to go whenever it happened. So um, what can I say? I was really, was really moved by her story. And I think that she was somehow slightly pushed to the side uh, in terms of, you know, the the, 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 the fame, the fame, not that she wanted fame or cultivated it, but she should have been better known, much better known. And um, 
I think well, that's one of the reasons that the books were written was to give you know people a chance to understand that she was she was the heart disciple, the heart disciple of the 16th Karmapa, almost like a consort. I'm not talking about physical, but their minds were attuned. She did the pujas together with all the tulkus in Rumtek. She um, she had a, a place inside where no woman ever had a place before or since, as far as I know. Uh, so there is no doubt that the 16th Karmapa regarded her as a very special person. That's fascinating. So may I ask, if you were to speculate, why do you think she's not better known or championed? Uh, uh, the only reason I can come up with um, is uh, something happened around that time that she, she passed away that uh, caused a great uh, division in the Kagyu lineage. It was the controversy over the recognition of the 17th Karmapa. Now, uh, that drew attention away from her life. Um, but you see, she also, she was a woman. She was a woman and these great stories are not usually about women, certainly not at that time. So maybe it was just thought that, um, you know, that nobody had really witnessed it except Annie Zangmo and that, but that's not true. And uh, that um, Annie Zangmo then went over to the other side. She crossed this invisible wall and then she was on the other side, on the other team, Karmapa, the other Karmapa team, um, so-called Karmapa, I have to say, but she crossed over that line and then there was no interaction between the two sides. So it's possible that the chief witness just put herself out of the picture. And um, however, in a newsletter that I read uh, subsequently, Barbara Petty, who, who was a great friend of hers and who was also a, uh, a very a solid devotee of um, Tai Situ Rinpoche, she wrote in a newsletter that Tai Situ Rinpoche had acknowledged that uh, the um, uh, Frida Beatty was the first person to attain enlightenment, first Western person to attain enlightenment. So that was um, an acknowledgement quite a lot after a few years, a few years after it had happened. So uh, I think that's the only thing I can come up with is um, something like that. It's not entirely satisfying, but it's the best I can come up with. Or just many things going on that that uh, uh, it it was a time of great uh, turbulence. That's what I, I want to say. The whole the whole thing was turbulent from from the the start in India. It was a very turbulent time, and actually in the world, she left her her home 
uh, and did not see her mother, even when her mother was on, oh, she did go there, but she did go back one time, 14 years later after the war, she went back with Kabir, with her baby, Kabir, uh, to, you know, to, to spend time with her mother. That was the first time that she could go back because the war was the great divide. You couldn't travel. So um, then it, um, she wasn't even there at her mother's uh, deathbed. She wasn't there when her, 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 her brother who was uh, in the war had been, um, I think he, he, he fell into the sea or something like that. He had, a, he ha he had something to do with the Navy. That's right, and and uh, and um, surprisingly, she didn't even see him then. So she really kind of um, did not put her family first. Um, so all this is to say that there was a lot of uh, a lot of complexity in her life a lot of ambiguity, a lot of, um, it exactly as Didi describes, it's not neat and tidy and one-sided. She was very multi-sided uh, person, many-faceted person. Um, I unfortunately never, never met her. But I looked at her, when I looked at her photograph in um, uh, some of the photos I saw of the 16th Karmapa, I thought, here is a memsab, if I've ever seen one. You know, she was, um, she just had the air of a very upper class woman. Um, I was utterly surprised to find out that she was working class and came from a quite a poor background. But she had modified her accent. By the way, I sent you that recording so you could get a little taste of it. But she had modified her accent until it became like cut glass. She had that air of authority, dignity, and um, leadership that was um, also tied up with this very feminine, melodious voice. So she was arresting and charismatic in her own right. You mentioned her various friendships with influential people. That seems to be a theme in her life. Mm. I wonder if you've thought at all about how it was she was able to make such friendships and enter into all kinds of, should we say, elite closed circles mm. that wouldn't perhaps naturally be open to her. Um, perhaps Oxford, certainly Indira, right. certainly the inner circle of the 16th Karmapa. Yeah. These, sorts of, these are, of course, um, that's, that's, a, that's a string there of, of you know, how, how do you think it was that she was able to access and become part of, of such closed elite circles that perhaps one wouldn't have assumed she'd be welcomed into? 
you know, she, her presentation of herself was uh, the secret, I think. She also had a cut glass accent, a crystal clear English accent, proper accent. Accents are everything, as you know, in uh, this country. And she also was uh, described as Oxford educated, although she had only graduated with a third class degree, same as Barbara Castle and all the other ladies that she hung out with because they were too busy doing other things like, you know, uh, investigating uh, uh, contraception, for example, or reading D.H. Lawrence or, you know, she was doing all she was doing all these kind of activities that uh, slightly drew her away from the crowd, set her apart from the crowd. And she was um, kind of a magnificent force in her own right. When she wanted something, she went to the Dalai Lama. She was a, you know, a very close friend of the Dalai Lama. In fact, at the end, the Dalai Lama uh, came to the Beatty, uh, to Ranga Beatty's household and um, embraced him. The Dalai Lama embraced Ranga and he said, you bring mummy's picture before my eyes. And they all wept, including the Dalai Lama. That's how much he loved her. Now, uh, as far as um, the, the movement that she was in, don't forget, had all the leaders about to become leaders all the people who were revolting in the Gandhi movement then became the controllers of India. So also Nehru. Um, there was also someone called Agapant who introduced her and told her while she's in Sikkim, she must go and see the Karmapa. Uh, uh, certain kinds of people who ended up in the cabinet, uh, they were all in prison with the BPL Beatty or, you know, one of those, uh, one of the team that was like trying to fix things and were considered very left wing. So that's how, I think that's how she did it. And then of course there was Barbara Castle who brought her into, well, she made way for um, Chogyam Trumpa to go to Oxford. So she, she could pull strings. She could pull strings. She had plenty of strings to pull. She also started like a Tibetan uh, friendship society where uh, a, a Tibetan would adopt, you know, a, a, an English person or whatever would adopt a Tibetan friend, a pen pal, so they could exchange letters and start to pick up a bit on culture and language. And she did all these kind of things and people sent money one, you know, one, dollar ten dollars and they were always there were she was handwriting thank you notes to everyone she was what do you call it she was micromanaging everything and it's not surprising that um in the end i think it's also possible ayang rinpoche explained this to to me he said she could have died of a heart attack sitting in meditation it could have been a heart attack 
but that wouldn't affect her meditation because what he thought was that she had done a dharmakaya poa and i think i want to read you a little bit uh, about what he said so uh, i think it's the very last the very last bit Oh, yeah. Um, he describes there are five different levels of POA. I teach on all levels, but who can do which level depends on the practitioner. In the POA teaching, it's mentioned that those who have clearly recognized Buddha nature in this lifetime and have realization of the practice at the time of death, the level of practitioner can do Dharmakaya POA. The result of Dharmakaya Poa will show in the body, which will have lifelike characteristics, not like a dead body. The corpse of the dead will not rot. This indicates a, a recognition of the ground clear light. So he says, it doesn't matter even if she had a heart attack. Good practitioners will recognize when they will die. In Dharmakaya Poa, breathing has already stopped. After the outer breathing has stopped, then the inner breathing stops. At that time, they can do Dharmakaya Poa. A heart attack would not make any difference. Tukdam is the name for a corpse in which some characteristics of a live body are present. The body is malleable, not stiff. The body does not rot, does not smell. The white sweat that occasionally appears on the brow in, is nectar, dutsi. The yogi who does dharmakaya poa sometimes remains sitting as she did. In the teachings, these special signs are mentioned. All the signs are that she attained perfect dharmakaya poa, the highest level. So, uh, that's that's uh, that's my takeaway, really, is that uh, more or less unrecognized. There was, as far as I know, no recognized reincarnation, um, and uh, I can't really say more. I'd like to ask a bit about what you discovered uh, in terms of her spiritual practices and the things she was she was working on. Uh, but first, you meant you write in the book that it was Oxford meeting BPL Beatty, where the Marxist creed molded Frida's caring nature. Yeah. And she was involved in political revolutionary activity activism and so on. Yes. What do you think, to what, to what extent do you think, did, did the did her Marxism travel with her uh, throughout her whole life? I understand, uh, for example, the Dalai Lama throughout his life in interviews has expressed his favoring of Marxism in, as a political philosophy and, 
has praised it. Uh, he said it in fact of himself on one occasion, I'm 50% Buddhist, 50% Marxist. So I, I understand it's quite a popular um, ideology in those circles. So I'm curious, did her Marxism, in your opinion, travel with her throughout her life? Did her political um, activism continue uh, even when she became a nun and became involved in all the other various uh, school and all that, the works that you mentioned? There was a, at a certain point, they both realized that political activity was not going to resolve anything. They both, the two of them, BPL as well. Yeah. After, after Kashmir, after trying everything in Kashmir. Uh, and uh, I think she did not take uh, the Marxist ideal very seriously after that. Although, just you know, Marxist idealism is so different from uh, the actual fact of communism, um, a communist state, that it's it's more a philosophy, a, a, a utopian, in a way, philosophy. And I think she began to see it that way as well. So she she did her, uh, you know, he he was according to Kabir, he called his father a rabble rouser, not a not a. Uh, like a, a Marxist revolutionary. He said his father could stir up an audience. That's what he did. Uh, his mother was never, uh, he said, as far as he knew, his mother was never a card-carrying uh, communist. But the Marxist idealism did inform her to some extent uh, because it then transformed really into Gandhi, into Gandhi's... Um, um, stop um, colonialism, anti-colonialist uh, movement. And she was, uh, you know, a great admirer of Gandhi's style of living. She said that her whole life had prepared her for living in um, mud huts, which they had to do at certain time, bamboo huts, mud huts, living, living on bare floors, sleeping rough. Her whole life had been a preparation for um, uh, retreat, <laughs> Buddhist retreats. So you, you, there is a thread there, you know. Uh, yeah, there is a thread, but it gets turned into different things. It's the same. It's the same heartfelt desire to help others that runs right through her life, but it gets called different names. I wonder if you um, have any more to say about the paradoxes and ambiguities. What are some of the paradoxes and ambiguities that Didi mentioned? Well, I found it very amusing that uh, she picked her wardrobe so carefully before she was a nun. You know, even I think uh, she was. Oh, what do they call it? They, uh, when they when they tell somebody that you have to leave Oxford for a term, it's a, some kind of a punishment because she was found sort of like uh, after hours outside with the BPL and, you know, she was a naughty lady. Um, and um, at that time, she was writing letters to her friend and saying, I've got this beautiful blue scarf I've just picked out and it's uh, I'm going to wear it with these shoes. And, you know, it was, I thought it was just so amusing because it, she was very girly at the same time, you know. Um, she, uh, I think she really even, well, of course she gave that up when she became uh, Galungma Palmo. But, you know, she sat with her, 
before going to this World Buddhist Conference where she was uh, an important uh, speaker at that conference. And at that conference uh, is where she passed away in the hotel room or yeah, it was a day before something like that. She went to her daughter's bedside in Calcutta her daughter, Guli, was giving birth to a baby. She sat with her daughter for 17 hours because the umbilical cord was wound around its body and she was praying. So she was mummy all the way through. I think that is the thing that uh, is the thread. She was Mother India. She was Mother Everything, you know, Earth Mother. Um, Dakini mother, every every sort of aspect of mother was in her. But um, oddly enough, oddly enough, she did not put her family really first. She she put her uh, her dharma, her dharma first. Yeah, but then you know she didn't become an Annie. She didn't become a nun until her children were well grown up, the youngest was 15 or 16. Still, the youngest, Guli, did miss her as a mother and she didn't get the mothering that she wished she had, but Kabir stepped in as elder brother and took care of her. So she forgave her in the end, but she was a bit angry for a while, she confesses. I think that's a paradox shared by many famous humanitarians and people who are That's seen right. as great mothers or great fathers and so on, often they're, it's the inverse in terms of their own family, in, in terms of the way towards their own children, often the opposite is the case. It's an, That's interesting. Right. That's yeah. right. And, and then, they, then they say that, you know, I'm now serving the wider family, the greater family. Yeah, it's, it's also true. But uh, the, the uh, little people that you leave behind don't always appreciate it so much and uh, Guli suffered a little bit but you know she came to terms with it and her paradoxes were many like that um uh her friendship with Indira Gandhi was um very very strong um she, I she, the only person Ringu Tulku said this the only person she was afraid of was Nehru, <laughs> um, because uh, she used to take the um, the children, the young llamas, not children, the young llamas on bus trips on holidays, and they would go to Delhi, and then they would have tea with, um, you know, the president of India, and watch uh, films together, and you know, they were all just delighted with the whole thing. But and and Ringo Tulka said, but the only person she was ever afraid of was Nehru. Uh, uh, otherwise, she was really fearless. What do you think that is with these sort of great, these great, um, the fame, the famous great mother human, humanitarians, and so on? The inverse effect in their own with their own children. What what is that? Do you think? It's, I think it's a desire to uh, spread the love that you have, uh, that, that you have reached a certain point in your life where you can give up your family and spread the love outwards and devote yourself to the greater good. Um, 
No, in her case, it did not come. I don't think she was very egotistical. So I don't think it came from that. I think it just came from the fact that, you know, she she used this expression, you can't tell an apple when to fall from the tree. So it was like, it was a natural outgrowth of what she had been doing and the timing was not up to her. The timing was up to nature or you could say, um, it was out of her hands. I mean, the time for her to become an, a, 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 an ordained person, she knew that that time had come. And also her husband, BPL, who was actually a, a very well-known womanizer, uh, they had stopped having a sexual relationship after the last child was born, after Guli was born. So they were always close as, as um, you know, like uh, she called it like the holly and the ivy. I don't like that expression because I hate ivy and I hate pulling it off. <laughs> but anyway, it was like they were entwined, you know, they were intertwined and that never changed. And, you know, when he, he was a great healer in himself, a BPL, and he had his own kind of nervous breakdown, which he didn't call a nervous breakdown, but he also had a full-on experience where he was, uh, he kind of turned to stone. What is it called when you, uh, catatonic, he had a catatonic experience where he just stood there for eight hours, didn't move, didn't eat anything. And they thought, uh, well, something's wrong, but they didn't, they were, they were smart enough to know that their parents were rather, <laughs> rather strange. So they just left him alone and suddenly he came back to life and he became, he had healing powers, enormous healing powers. Uh, people came to him from here, there, and everywhere. And finally, an Italian professor came to him and offered him a place in Italy to start his own healing society. And he became very well known, wrote a lot of books, and um, uh, he had, uh, he remarried. He married a woman called Antonio, Antonia. And you know, the picture of Frida and 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 um, BPL together was never taken off the walls of their house in Italy until Beatty himself died, and then Antonia took it off. So that shows you how strong their connection was. It was not like a usual marriage. They were not. They were not usual people, either of them. And uh, and I have to say, Kabir is not the usual guy either. Uh, I have to say, I was very, very much impressed by his um, generosity and informality and uh, loving kindness. I was in India doing this book during the time that. Um, Suddenly, um, whoever it was who was in power at the time, I don't think it was Modi, I'm not sure, but I was doing this book at the time where he withdrew the banknotes 
No, there was a, it was a, I remember it was the same year that Leonard Cohen died, but I don't remember what that year was. But he withdrew the banknotes because um, there was too many hundred notes in circulation. So he wanted to make um, 500 notes. So it meant that every, suddenly you'd go to the ATM to withdraw money and there was no money there. There were queues around the block. And uh, I called Kabir and I said, look, do you think I could um, borrow some money from you? Because I can't get anything out of the, the machine. And he was ready to give it. But I, in the end, I managed to get money uh, out of the machine. I told him, look, I don't need it. But he would have given me anything I asked for. So I'm just citing this as a small example of what, you know, what he's prepared to do. And I think a lot of the things that he does are not even known. He's, uh, he's kind of pretty much a Buddhist. He was a, he was a novice monk in Burma together with his mother. He took vows. He went around with a begging bowl. He was the smallest, youngest uh, little monk there. And uh, they piled everything onto his bowl at the end. And, uh, and there's a beautiful picture of him. I think it's really beautiful that um, I think it was Ranga's wife who uh, painted the picture. But um, let's see if I can find it. It's more or less at the beginning when he was a monk. Oh, yeah, here we are. Here we are. If you can see this. It's on page uh, 21. I wonder if we might talk a bit more about her meditation and spiritual training. She went, as you said, to Burma, Burma and studied under Mahasi Sayadaw and evidently had quite a profound experience there. Yeah. And then, you know, we've talked about the 16th Karmapa in the last episode. We talked all about him and his successor or successors, um, as some would have it. And one, one imagines it would be difficult to be in his orbit so much and remain unchanged by it. So I wonder if we might, if we, if we were to trace that thread from Burma onwards, is there more to say on, well, on, yeah. what, she, on what she accomplished and what she practiced? Do we know more about that? Yeah, um, what she practiced, of course, with the, the Burmese guru, gurus that she had was Vipassana. Uh, so she had, that's a very, very strong practice. That's a very strong training uh, also uh, in Tibetan Buddhism. But uh, she was considered to have been an advanced practitioner even before she met the 16th Karmapa. That's what Ayang Rinpoche said. She was an advanced, uh, you know, meditator. So when she came to Tibetan Buddhism, she was really ready for it. And uh, there's no doubt that she practiced um, Badriyogini, uh, which is one of the main deity practices. Um, and of course, as I had mentioned, Poa. And uh, uh, there's, in Tibetan Buddhism, there is such a host of practices, but I didn't find out, I went to her house, I went to her house uh, while I was doing the research. Um, her her house um, in Andretta. I also went to Talokpur Nunnery, which she started. 
and looked around. There were some texts there. Um, I'm sure she was every day, you know, the Karmapa would do the Mahakala Puja and she would sit there with the monks doing Mahakala. Um, so I think she was, she always said that you have to get it direct. You have to get it directly, the transmission, you have to be in the presence of the guru to receive the transmission. And that was the most important thing. Devotion was the most important thing to the guru. So she was really, really mature, a, a mature practitioner practicing uh, Tibetan Buddhist Dharma in, in that line. And she, no doubt, I mean, she was really ready for it. Most people these days, of course, are not, you know. Uh, don't have that foundation, but she really, she she actually, meditation is another thing that ran right through her life from the time that she was Christian. She was always looking for a direct experience of uh, God, you know, so that's not the usual thing for a young girl sitting in a church in Derby before going to school, sitting there for an hour every day and trying to become one of the Christian saints with a direct experience, you know? That runs right through her life. She never stopped meditating. She said it helped her, her creative flow, you know? So meditation ran through her life. In a sense, you could say bodhicitta ran through her life, the desire to help others. Um, motherliness. She also um, had, yeah, she, uh, on Mount Shasta in California, she spent some time there in retreat and uh, somebody called, um, one of, one of her, uh, one of the Karmapas devotees handed him, handed the 16th Karmapa a, a statue of Tara. And he said, Karmapa said later, Sister Palma told him this, that Karmapa said that because of the time, the timing of that, and the fact that it was a Tara statue, uh, meant that his practice would grow and the center would grow and everything would come right. So I guess she was also a Tara, a Tara emanation, I would say. But I'm just saying that. That's my it's my feeling that she she carried she carried some kind of uh, not just meditation, but some kind of embodiment of, of of a deity, I think, was already planted in her mind because she was somebody before, obviously, who had practiced a great deal. Uh, and, you know, it could be that she was not meant to be recognized in that lifetime. Many bodhis, there are bodhisattvas who are never recognized. There are many bodhisattvas who are recognized, but don't do the activity of bodhisattvas. 
So I think she was one of the undercover bodhisattvas um, who didn't want name and fame, didn't want to be known as anything other than Mamila. In fact, uh, the Dalai Lama said to her, uh, she introduced her friend, um, Frida, Shap Frida, not, not Frida, uh, Olive. She introduced her friend Olive to the Dalai Lama and, uh, and the Dalai Lama said to um, Olive, uh, what do you call her? And she said, I call her Frida. And the Dalai Lama said, I call her Mamila. See, that's how deep it went. She made it. And I'm very, uh, I'm very honored to have, have, have been able to enter her life in that way. I still have that photograph on my wall of the cover of the book because I thought it was so beautiful. I can see it behind you, in fact. Can you see it? Oh, that's good. That's good. It's one of my, my preferred wall hangings. It's, um, I gave a talk at the Buddhist Society and they, they, they framed the picture and then they, they gave it to me. Um, I've, I've given quite a few talks on the book and um, I must say, uh, hearing her voice is what um, I, I played out as well. So you might want to integrate that into the, into the program in some way. I would, I would love to do that. Is it possible, do you think, to put this in the program? Do we have the right permissions? You have permission from me. <laughs> and, and I was given, uh, you know, I was given that by Olive's son, Nick Salt. Uh, that's another story, actually. Interesting story. I suddenly heard that um, there was, that after Olive Shapley died, she left a pile of uh, recordings to her son, Nick Salt, who never really looked at them very carefully. But one day um, he discovered that there was this uh, recording of um, his mother interviewing Frida in 1968 when she was a nun, uh, Galongma Palmo, in Rumtek. And there was this beautiful, you know, she would have remembered Frida as this beautiful Mona Lisa. And suddenly, um, uh, there, there is sitting a bold woman, quite overweight, quite overweight, and um, and uh, wearing maroon robes, and she comes up with this perfectly English line: "You haven't changed a bit." <laughs> and that's how that's how the recording starts. And uh, <laughs> I thought it was delightful. Do you want to play any of it? Yes, I might. I might, if you, with your permission, include all of it. All of it. You have all of it. My permission is there. Splendid. Well, let's listen to that now. Let's do that. I'd just like to ask you, you know, by what road you have come to this, for instance? Here you are in this monastery in Sikkim, very remote part of the world. Now, what has brought you here? You mean, what is my life story? Where I was born, son. Well, I was born in Derbyshire, in Derby. And funnily enough, in a place called Monk Street. <laughs> and after that, I lived in the countryside near Derby. Of course, now 
must be a suburb of Derby, a place called Little Over. And I had a very pleasant country childhood. Went to the secondary school in Derby. And then to Oxford. And uh, while I was at Oxford, that I broke away from what might be called my Christian background. Of course, what brings you to a life of meditation, life of Buddhist life, life in a monastery, is, is a deep thing. It, it's something that goes on for years and years and years, and it doesn't come quickly. And I, as I was telling you this morning, I think, it was rather like a subterranean stream that went on underground all the time I was leading a very active life which finally emerged. And uh, at that point, I realized that that was the mainstream. And most important... Just, yeah. Sorry, just to go back for a moment. How strong was your Christian background as a girl? My father was a deeply religious man. He was killed in the First World War when I was quite a child. And I was sent to church and Sunday school as a child. I don't think my mother had um, any strong uh, religious feeling much herself, but she had a feeling that she should bring up her children in a good Christian way, and she was she sent she sent us to church, and I was always interested in, especially in the Old Testament, uh, as a child. And when I at a teenage age of about 14. I was confirmed in the Church of England and I took great interest in the mystical side of Christian religion. I don't like the word mystic very much, but I mean the deeper side of Christian religion. And I think my first interest in meditation began from that because I, I read the lives found as the Anglo-Catholic movement, Cardinal Newman and others, and Catholic saints, the two St. Teresa's. And I felt that this was something that I must find out more about, and that uh, this busy life of a girl going to school and doing all kinds of school work and studying for examinations used to trouble me a lot, and I felt I needed peace. And I used to go to the church in the early morning every day before going to school for about an hour and sit there quietly. Which I suppose it's not a usual thing to do. And I never told anybody I was doing it either. But I used to do it. Anyway, when I got to Oxford, suddenly a lot of doors opened and I understood something about different other religions and ways of thought, and sort of the country girl going to Oxford. <laughs> and at that time, I, I didn't really know what to do, but one thing I was sure about, and that was that the Christian religion was not the final answer as far as I was concerned. I had nothing against the Christian religion, still haven't. In fact, I think all religions are good. And 
I, but I felt it wasn't the, the final answer for me and that I must have the freedom of finding out for myself. At that time, I stopped uh, going to church. Then I led the life of ordinary life of a university student, as you know. <laughs> and while I was at Oxford, I met an Indian student. I felt very interested in everything connected with India. This is a natural interest. Of course, as a Buddhist, I think it may be something to do with my samskar, as we call them, or, or the thought formations coming from former lives. That's how we explain these inclinations. Uh, and uh, then I got married shortly after taking my degree and came to India about a year later. That was in 1934. And when I reached India, although I should have felt strange being in a strange country, I felt very much at home. And I loved India from the moment I put my foot on Indian soil. It's been a real home to me. Not that I didn't love England, I did love it. And there's still that feeling for England is the land of my birth. But there was something very, very deep in my love for India, although I couldn't speak the language and or communicate, really. And the uh, beginning, lived in the Punjab, which is my husband's home. And it was a time of great stress and difficulty in India, the time of the freedom movement. And uh, both of us, full of idealism about the independence of India, took part in the movement. That's a long story I needn't go into. But anyway, it was a very busy life. I was uh, bringing up a family. My first child was born in 34. And I was a lecturer in the, one of the first colleges for women in the Punjab in um, Lahore. And I used to write, in fact, and move about a lot in the villages mostly on this work connected with the independence movement. It was a very, very full life. But still, that feeling persisted, that I must find out, well, the meaning of life, the meaning of suffering. Why? And what? And how? And I mean, all the things one asked. And so, in about, about 19... 37, uh, I met a very interesting English woman. I don't know if she's still living. She used to be a big pianist at one time. She later became a Hindu Swami. She said to me that you're interested in these deeper things. Why don't you meditate? And uh, she told me one or two things about meditation. And from that, I mean, it was just an ordinary conversation. It wasn't really a lesson. Uh, I started meditating on my own, and I found it so absorbing and so revealing and satisfying that uh, I used to try to keep on doing it. And I, I used to meditate also before writing. It helped me a lot. It helped the creative side of life. And when I went into the Himalayas in the summer, very hot in the plains in India, then I used to have periods of meditation. Nobody knew about it, really, except my own family. Of course, all my family knew. 
And I used to take interest in practically all the Eastern religions. I didn't choose between them. I didn't get converted to any of them. And I used to read uh, Sri Ramakrishna in his life. And uh, the life of Guru Nanak. My husband comes from the family of Guru Nanak. And uh, the Quran Sharif. Sorry, that's the Sikh leader. Yes. Hmm. The founder of the Sikh religion. The descendant. My husband comes from the family of the descendants of Guru Nanak. And uh, the Quran Sharif, which is the Muslim holy book. And the Bhagavad Gita, which is the main book of uh, most Hindus. And uh, some mystic poems from different religions. And the Bible still. And I used to keep the books on my table and just pick them up and think about them and meditate. But the meditation was not on anything. It was an attempt to reach beyond the mind, if you like. Put it like that. Well, to cut a long story short, we had a very busy life. And after independence, we, kept, we naturally remained in India. So we were living in Kashmir and uh, in Delhi. I was working as a social worker and a writer most of the time, bringing up my family. I had three children by then. Still, this interest was very deep in my mind. In 1953, I got the opportunity to go to Burma for six months uh, with uh, the United Nations uh, Social Services Planning Commission. It was very interesting. And because I had to go for six months, I had to leave my family behind for that short period. So I had more time to meditate. And while I was there, I met a most remarkable Buddhist teacher, actually one a very remarkable uh, monk who had been in England for 14 years and uh, through the last war had been in ARP and a few other things, uh, who really understood England and who was a very saintly person. And he taught me meditation on my request. And it was then that uh, after about eight weeks, uh, I got my first flash of uh, understanding. I can't call it more than that. But it changed uh, my whole life. I felt that really this meditation had shown me what I was trying to find. Something of it at least I understood. And I got great, great happiness feeling that I had found the path. So although I really didn't know much about Buddhism at that time, and I felt that the Buddha had been what we call Tomba Lame in Tibetan, which means the leader supreme or the guide supreme, and that uh, therefore I should uh, take the Buddhist faith. So I told my family about it, and everybody was very understanding, and I became Buddhist. That was in 1953. Then in 56, His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to Delhi with a lot of uh, Buddhists from all over the world for the anniversary celebrations. Lord Buddha, 2,500. And I got his blessing then. 
And in the meantime, I was studying meditation with another very wonderful Burmese guru, to whom I'm always grateful, Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw. And I went to Burma two or three times. In the meantime, carrying on, you know, full <laughs> life as a, as a, um, a mother and uh, doing a government job of one of the ministries, as a social welfare worker. I was editing a social welfare magazine. And this went on until 1959, when the Tibetan refugees came into India. And at that time, I felt a great wish to, to help them. And I felt, with my, with my particular background, both as a Buddhist and as a mother and a social worker, perhaps I could help in the refugee camps. So the upshot of that was that uh, I was sent, on my own request, to one of the transit camps uh, near the frontier. And I worked with the Tibetan refugees for about six months, and helping the mothers and the babies, and all, doing all things that women can do. And also getting to know the lamas and understanding their problems. So many lamas. I think the percentage must have been about a quarter of the total refugees must have been lamas. And nobody quite knew what to do with them. They couldn't understand why they couldn't do the ordinary sort of work. They thought they were shy of work, which wasn't true, because they worked terribly hard even in their monasteries. But they have to have the right sort of work, because after all, they've given up everything to be a lama. Everything that all human beings want, the home, and family, and um, comfort, and, and the freedom of moving around, and so on. And why have they given up all? Well, there's some reason for it, and they're not going to give it up without a wrench. Of course, there are the few who, coming into contact with modern life, will naturally give up their robes and decide to take to a lay life. That's different. But those who are really dedicated, uh, we have to find out really what to do and how to help them keep the tradition alive, because it's very deep and very beautiful. You know, we say in the teaching of the Buddha that it's beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, and beautiful at the end. And it's, uh, it is the way across the ocean of suffering in the world. And when you once realize the, the suffering of the world, and you've realized that there's a way across it, that is the time when you take the renunciation and you feel that the only thing really worth doing is not the physical, uh, actual work of the world, but helping the minds of people, put it like that, uh, helping them understand how to overcome the suffering that every human being has. So that's the voice of Frida Beatty there in conversation with Olive. It's a wonderful artifact uh, of her, and seeing as you know, that's what part of this interview is about is um, bringing it to life. Yeah. Bringing her, yeah, bringing it to life and bringing her uh, her life to be more more widely known. I mean, I've known about Frida Beatty, of course. She is quite famous, and she's written about in Chogyam Trungpa's book, Born in Tibet. So. I've come across her myself, of course, and I'm surprised that when you tell me that she's not more widely known and presumably uh, would be quite an inspiration if she was to many people and perhaps a challenge to others, in fact. Um, but it's a wonderful book here, The Spiritual Odyssey of, of Frida Beatty, published by Shang Tsung Publications. I, I recommend everyone get it. Lots of many interesting anecdotes as well as it traces really 
in parallel to her life, your own journey as you went all around the world and interviewed and met all kinds of people and sometimes very serendipitously. And there are wonderful pictures in there. One thing is that uh, Kabir is determined to make a film about that. He did congratulate me and the whole family was very pleased with the book and he liked it very much and he was going to use it in some way to make a film. Maybe he'll combine all the three books, probably he will, but he's looking for, um, well, he's looking for a producer, I guess. So um, I think that'll happen in the course of time. I think we're coming now towards the end of our time. And I'm wondering, as you reflect on Frida Beatty and your own journey into her life, represented by this, this book, The Spiritual Odyssey of, of Frida Beatty, what are your thoughts now? It's been, you may, we were discussing before that you'd, you'd gone through the book again in preparation for our discussion and had been struck by certain aspects of it and certain aspects of Frida's life. When you think of her now, what, what are your thoughts? What are your, I suppose, concluding remarks or perhaps even further reflections from what you said in the book on her now you've had some years distance? I think she's really deeply significant in bringing, I mean, Timmy Rinpoche said the Dharma, he said, to, to, he said to me while I was interviewing him, the Dharma that you have now would not be here without Frida Beatty. So I have more and more admiration for what she did. And I really do like people who, who do things without fanfare, you know? There was no social media, of course, there wasn't. But there was no, there was no kind of, uh, there was no greed in her, none, not at all. She was an outstanding example of, a, you know, a working, a workaday bodhisattva who kept it really, she, she kept, she kept her, um, she kept her Samaya, truly. And I have great admiration for her. And for all the family, the family was wonderful to me. They opened up the archives, they did everything, everything. Let me take photographs, put me up in a their beautiful house. I have, you know, it was a really, really um, enriching experience, for which I'm really grateful. Well, thank you very much for joining me today to discuss the life of Frida Beatty and your book, The Spiritual Odyssey of Frida Beatty. I hope very much that that film is made and uh, perhaps this interview can contribute a little bit to her being more widely known also. So, Naomi Levine, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.